Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem... Brexit means Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. That's what we do normally. I'm Royfield Brown, who's um, in a somewhat overcast Bay Area in my beloved California. Today we are joined by Piotr Curzon, geopolitical expert from Washington DC and the host of the Global Gambit podcast. He's joined by Greg Sittel, an award-winning author and businessman who has lived in Kiev for over, who has lived in Kiev for over some 10 years. And we have Steve O'Neill, who is the deputy head of policy for the Liberal Democrats in the UK between 2013 and 2015. You can hear more uh, from him if you go to his blog or his podcast, which is called No Man's Land. In a week which has seen uh, a U.S. federal judge strike down a mask mandate in public places, we ask how many lives does the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson have? First, there was the Sue Gray investigation. That was launched four months ago. Then came the Metropolitan Police. And now... They will be followed by the House of Commons Privileges Committee and it could be the most dangerous of them all for the Prime Minister. After a tumultuous 24 hours, this motion went through with little fanfare and what sounds like no opposition. Does many of that opinion say aye? Aye! Of the contrary, no. I think the ayes have it. The ayes have it. And with that... The Prime Minister will be investigated as to whether he misled Parliament over Partygate after existing investigations have concluded. Last night, while aboard a jet to India and talking to journalists, it emerged the government was trying to delay today's vote, a decision Boris Johnson himself backed this morning. I'm very keen for every possible form of of, uh, scrutiny and if the House of Commons can do, I think, whatever it wants to do. Uh, But all I would uh, say is I don't think that... Uh, That should happen until uh, the investigation is completed. Then, the turn of the Education Secretary to defend delay on breakfast TV. So should he resign? So so what I think the right thing uh, to do is to follow due process. Due process is important. Well, I think 
due process is really important. The amendment we've put down today uh, basically uh, says that we need to wait for the police to complete their investigation. Steve O'Neill, our Brit in Britain. Um, first off, before we go into whether due process will see off Boris Johnson, um, can you give us a quick two-minute pricey on Partygate for our American cousins who maybe aren't aware of the ins and outs? All right, nice to nice to join you as always, uh, Roy Ford. Yeah, um, Partygate, where to start? So it's been rumbling on for about five months now, and... Um, Essentially, what happened was a drip drip of stories that showed parties or gatherings or other things that break social distancing rules happening in number 10 and other bits of government. Um, the, once this came out, initially uh, a civil servant called Sue Gray, so you might have heard the tale of the Sue Gray report in that, in that clip, was asked to look into the, look into the matter. Uh, then it was referred to the police, who since, I think last week it was, charged both the Chancellor and the Prime Minister, that's Richie Sunak and, and Boris Johnson, and find them um, for breaking the rules. Um, and now what we've had this week is this um, this motion by Labour, which is referring a matter to a parliamentary committee, the Privileges Committee, uh, around whether Boris Johnson lied to Parliament or misled Parliament when he initially denied having any kind of parties that broke the rules. Um, uh, and that, that's essentially where we are today with the news breaking that this vote has gone through. Hot take. Boris Johnson is about to be investigated by a Commons committee. Do you believe that he's going to get his political comeuppance? It seems to be that uh, Tory backbenchers, Conservative backbenchers, have literally just about had their fill. And the fact that this motion w w was carried with utterly no dissent um, has surely got to be an ill omen if you are the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. It's definitely not a good thing, but from what I understand, I don't think he's as near to being ousted or being seriously challenged to as he was a few months ago. I think what's happening here from everything I, I've sort of managed to get my head around today is that Tory MPs don't want to be seen to um, back him, essentially, but they also don't want to sack him. They didn't want to be attacked by Labour for voting that he shouldn't be investigated. Uh, and so what they were apparently saying to the whips who sort of organised voting in Parliament is that, is that they were going to abstain. And when they realised they might lose the vote, they thought, oh, we'll just not oppose it. So they've just allowed it to go through. It's not quite the same thing as Tory MPs wanting to get rid of Boris Johnson. That That's a different process. And it, it I think it sounds like this is more them wanting to avoid the slack for backing him through this rather than a, a coordinated attempt at this point to actually get rid of him. But surely the the privilege committee, uh, the privileges committee, has um, somewhat wide scope. You know, they can say that he, on the one hand, he just needs to be censured, he just needs to apologise, or, and also that the standard is is that um, a politician who lies to Parliament is supposed to step down. So if they were to say, well, that is the ultimate option. Surely he's toast. And and this committee, um, I think, but probably there's seven on there. It's four Tories, two Labour, one Lib Dem. It's not as if it's it's, it's uh, out of the realms of possibility that they would uh, recommend the high sanction for the Prime Minister. Yeah, and I think with this, it's getting to the stage of, of your guess is as good as mine. Um, it probably is going to be tricky to sort of prove or really demonstrate that he knowingly lied. 
Um, although it's quite hard to to not know when you're in a party, and that's been the kind of joke all along here. Um, I, they can't make him resign. They can put sanctions in place and they can suspend MPs. But of course, if they find him to have misled Parliament, that is the convention. So, I mean, he gets seems to get out of everything, like you said, with the nine lives. Um, and at the moment, I'm probably betting that he somehow wriggles out of this for now. But there's a huge amount of uncertainty with this and various other things coming up. So, um, yeah, your guess is as good as mine. Piotr, what's your feeling on this? I think most pundits were surprised that at least this motion was carried w- with no uh, dissent. Were you, were you similarly surprised that uh, no Tory backbenchers displayed any opposition to the passing of this motion that the Privileged Committee should look into the Partygate affair? I think it's inevitably a little bit surprising that there wasn't some support still or loyalty to to Mr. Johnson. But given how lack of a loyalty he has had, say, well, in the Brexit campaign, um, I think it's finally coming back round to bite him. Um, the fact he was ready to call a three line whip to oppose this motion and then you turned on that. Only, I think, goes to show how much of a rebellion is building in, in the Tory party. Uh, his days are, are certainly, and I think, well, at least for me, welcomely numbered. It only is Johnson who could have the opportune moment of one of the worst disasters in, in recent history in the form of the Ukraine war to suddenly, you know, delay what I think is, and hopefully, his inevitable demise. It's been a long time coming since, what, the 90s. We've always been like, oh... Boris Johnson, one day will he run? Will he ever be uh, prime minister? He was such a, you know, infamous member of the party, but also just the whole of uh, the UK Parliament system that people were immediately wondering if he would ever run for prime minister. And now he's in it. Uh, And hopefully it will come crashing down in a spectacular fashion uh, in that way. It's also I think it's just his arrogance of, of a sorry, not sorry attitude, I guess you could say. Um, when speaking to backbench MPs, away from cameras, uh, I've read many a opinion piece and report. Some friends I have in, uh, in the government and lower levels have been told that they're, you know, he's just incredibly dismissive. And it shows you that certain Newtonian um, private background that he has and that he does think he's a step up even amongst his own party members. And and that's also reflected in the people that he surrounded himself by. I mean, trust is not exactly palpable. Patel is absolutely deplorable and, and other people as well. So, I mean, Jacobs Reed Mogg, I mean, I think we can all agree he's not exactly the most pleasant individual. And if you if you say that you are standing by them, then you're, you know, or you're against them, rather, you're just considered a sort of lefty. Uh, and it's this whole, just you, a lot of labels and just, flinging of insults quite dismissive, which I think people have had enough of, even within the Tory party. Um, as to say whether or not he will actually be removed, it's difficult to say. But, uh, you know, I think it's about time we got someone who had competence in place. And, and the fact that it is the Queen's 96th birthday on, on what, the 21st of April. Um, and we know what happened last year when she buried um, Prince Philip. Uh, senior Conservative backbencher Steve Baker, just to back you up, uh, Piotr, accused Mr Johnson of indulging in an orgy of adulation and a festival of bombast on Tuesday, uh, shortly after apologising to MPs for his rule-breaking. So it does seem uh, that uh, Tory MPs have just about ha- had their fill of him. Um, back over to you, uh, Steve O'Neill. Uh, Sakia Starmer 
It's called The Government's U-Turn, A Humiliating Climb Down, that showed Tory MPs know they can no longer defend the indefensible. Um, Starmer is sticking it to Johnson in in Parliament, isn't he? Um, Does he have uh, the nation uh, behind him in terms of everyone is still um, upset, riled up? And as Piotr said, we have the, the symbol from on high, so to speak, our, in our head of state who buried her husband in an, uh, an empty cathedral because uh, there was no no more than six people were, were allowed to gather. But there you go. You have the prime minister um, having parties with, with beer, wine and cake. Are people still riled up about this or... The, you know, the, the man on the Clapham omnibus, is he now saying enough's enough? We have uh, the Russians invading Ukraine. We need to move on with this party gate shenanigans. I think they are reviled. And even if people are ready to move on and think there are bigger, bigger things in the world, Johnson's reputation has taken a huge hit from this. And I think the Conservative Party's brand has also taken a big hit from this. And that's illustrating a lot of the kind of polling and focus group stuff you see for people to follow those those things. What I'd say about, you mentioned Starmer, who's been really good when it's come to parliamentary performances. I think he, he's come into his own, so taking to Johnson, taking Johnson to task on this, as you mentioned, is that, that while Labour are doing much, much better, it, it's not like they're absolutely running away with it. And it, it's not clear that just this and just Johnson being a mess on its own is going to be enough, from, enough for them come the general election in a couple of years' time. Um, so while they've been really good at sticking it to the government on this, sticking to Johnson on this, they might need a bit more if we're going to talk about them actually governing next. The leader of the Lib Democrats has, has also kind of weighed in. Is this first kind of chink of daylight in terms of the opposition post-Brexit being able to lay a glove on this Tory administration? I t- really mix my meta- metaphors there, but let's go with laying a glove on them, Steve. Yeah, but they're not they're not bad metaphors. I, I think this is the most significant time, and it, you can see that the the government is in bigger trouble than I think ever the, ever before. Actually, if you think back to the pandemic, actually though as well, what happened early in, in sort of mid twenty twenty, late twenty twenty is that a similar thing happened. They recovered because we were talking about the vaccine bounce, and they sort of recovered after that. And and there was a People wondered when all this started, and it didn't actually start necessarily at Partygate. It started with various other scandals, corruption, Matt Hancock, um, the the Owen Patterson affair, where they tried to get him off from breaking the rules, another M- Tory MP. People thought, well, will they just recover from this when the year turns, the economy bounces back, and 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 COVID's gone? And this this is not what's happening. They're they're being permanently damaged. They permanently lost ground. Um, and it is going to be it is going to be a, a, a thorn in their side for a long time. Piotr, I don't know how closely you're looking at UK opinion polls, but there are going to be council elections. Um, I think May the seventh, definitely in the first week of May. Do you think that anyhow this crisis drags past May the seventh? and the Conservatives have a relative bloodbath, that it's going to be political expediency will kick in. And that will be the reason why maybe the backbenchers, the Conservative um, Parliamentary Party, decide that they'll be, that Johnson completely is a political liability. So from what I recall looking, Johnson's general reputation has 
it's been steadily climbing as badly. If you look at YouGov polls from recent months, um, it was, I think the lowest he was recently in was in June of last year, but that was during the summer and things. It was around 45. The the approval of Boris Johnson as PM uh, versus disapproval was sort of, they were about tit for tat. Uh, and since then, they've steadily increased. And then around November, they shot up to around uh, with a high of about 71% of people believing that Boris was, well, just doing badly. Uh, this was on 15th December of last year when we began to really see party gate uh, gain momentum. And that was also the lowest that uh, Boris Johnson's approval was. And since then, it's reclimbed. It's at about 30% now from what I last remember reading last week. Uh, and he has, uh, and the badly sort of, ratings have dipped to 63%, but this is still the highest that it's ever been since, um, since Boris took over. And I think it's important to remember that a lot of that improvement hasn't come from him doing a domestic job. It's his response to uh, the Ukraine conflict. This is why we have to keep that in as a, as a relevant factor. It's such a shock event, such an inflection point in international politics, it has huge implications on domestic uh, it's much of the reason why Putin invaded in one of the first places, you could argue. But um, government approval generally has steadily in increased uh, to around 57%, whilst the approval rating has, has been around the same at sort of quarter percent. But what's interesting as well is the specific, are the specific political figures themselves. Sakir Starmer now has a popularity rating of 33% which is higher than Rishi Sunak was uh, a few months back. Boris is, has slumped 28. Um, and even, even, even Theresa May, the, the, the Brexit prime minister, has reclaimed some sort of ground. So th I do think we're beginning to see, I, I hate this term sea change. I don't think it's that big, but we are beginning to see a notable shift, I think, in the overall perspective of people's uh, opinions of, of the political climate. And... If this had been, what I really think would be interesting is what this would have been like if we'd had Corbyn as Labour leader. Uh, whether or not you liked him as an individual, he was divisive and he never really garnered the popularity that Sakir has taken a while to gather, but he is beginning to develop. And I was a bit of a fan when Sakir came in because I thought he was more palpable than much of the Tory party. I don't align to any one specific party. I just felt like Sakir had a better competency to him potentially. Um, but he took a long time to get himself together and to find his, like most people would be like, why do you like Sakir? Like, what does he actually stand for? What's his position? And I think we're beginning to, to see that now when the Tory party are beginning to implode and infight. Sakir is beginning to at least uh, weather the storm of the division that still exists in the Labour Party. But he's, he's coming across as more of a respectable individual than I think Boris is. And so I, I think it's, uh, it's going to be interesting to see I'll rephrase it in saying that since Brexit, our politics has been defined by Remain and Leave instead of Tory and Labour. And I think that this, these events now may begin to refocus that along traditional uh, voting lines. Uh, and you may well see a, a, a good performance for Labour in the upcoming elections. But I don't want to get too carried away with forecasting. Surely what Sakir Starmer stands for compared to Boris Johnson is uh, competency over bluff. Uh, and, and bluster, uh, but but Steve Steve O'Neill, uh, we're going to end with you because um, I, if you'd have asked me six months ago who the next Prime Minister of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland was going to be, 
I'd have said Dishi Rishi. Rishi Sunak was going to be the man. Do, do you think that his, um, his route to 10 Downing Street has taken um, a knock uh, because of this? He's also been fined by the police because he attended a party. But then also um, his wife has got some uh, slightly questionable tax affairs. And all of a sudden he's, uh, he's kind of ducked out of the limelight. And there was word, wasn't there, that senior Tories were going to resign if this uh, motion hadn't actually been passed. Have we seen the end of Dishi Rishi, at least for the foreseeable future, as the Tory heir in waiting? Yeah, I think we have. And it's been strange. You know, he, he, he emerged so quickly at the beginning of the pandemic as, the, as this hugely popular figure from basically nowhere. And pretty quickly, he's gone from being, as you say, the heir apparent to being, oh, I'm not sure, maybe he's missed his, his moment. Like, like, like you say, he's been fine. Like you say, the non-dom status of his um, uh, wife, who is very, very wealthy, a billionaire, um, has not played well. And and uh, as Perota was saying, um, he's now le- you know less popular than Keir Starmer. So I think I think he he before he's going to be a serious leadership contender again. He's got a bit of rebuilding to do, which incidentally I think probably makes possibly makes Boris Johnson a bit safer because because I think Sunak was probably seen as the obvious person to replace him with when he was so popular. But now I think or I, I read at least that Conservative MPs aren't sure, you know, even if they all know that Johnson is terrible, they're not quite sure where to go. So, yeah, I think that's right. I think I think we we may well see a, a comeback from from Sunak. But, um, yeah, he's miles away from right now from being being next prime minister. Let us move away from the United Kingdom and the travails of Boris Johnson. And let's go to the brave defenders of a factory in Maripol in Ukraine. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Russian President Vladimir Putin has claimed victory in Mariupol, saying his forces have successfully liberated the port city in southeastern Ukraine. Putin ordered his military to blockade the city's Avazovstaz steel plant, sealing Ukrainian troops and civilians inside. Here's a clip from his televised meeting with his defense minister, Sergei Shoigu. 
I consider the proposed storming of the industrial area pointless. I order to abort it. This is a case where we must think, we must always think, but even more so in this case, about preserving the life and health of our soldiers and officers. There is no need to climb into these catacombs and crawl underground through these industrial facilities, block off this industrial area so that not even a fly can get through. The Azovstal steel plant is the last place in Mariupol still in Ukrainian hands. Russia says more than 2,000 Ukrainian troops are holding out in the heavily fortified plant. Ukrainian officials say around 1,000 civilians are also seeking refuge there with food running low. Kiev is demanding that Moscow open a humanitarian corridor to let civilians flee. Piotr, what should the world make of uh, the defenders in, in this factory? And what should we think about uh, Putin deciding to turn his attentions away from it? At least that's what he said he, he's going to do. Uh, and maybe to concentrate on Russian operations elsewhere in Ukraine. The steel plant where these 2,000 fighters or so are being held up, I think, is a testament to one, the sheer resolve of the Ukrainian forces, but second, the stubborn, stubbornness and almost sort of short-sightedness of the Russians to want to just continue to clamour away at one singular plant whilst they've got an entire other area or, you know, that they can be focusing on, on the eastern part of the Ukraine, Donbass, and so on. The fighters that are in the plant are some of the most battle-hardened and uh, are make up supposedly this Azov battalion, the the one that has become quite synonymous with neo-Nazi, far-right, however you would like to phrase it, uh, part of the original Ukrainian forces. They were some of the first to volunteer to go and begin fighting and defending eastern Ukraine when the Russians were supporting the separatists in 2014. So they're some of the most experienced. What's biggest concern is the Russians' uh, unwillingness to allow humanitarian evacuation. The Mariupol city is 450,000 people, um, well, used to be. And now you still have tens of thousands. The official estimate is around 100, but it's unclear how big that is. And the unwillingness for the Russians to, to facilitate these corridors. Time and again, they've said, sure, from this time for, to this time, we will support, you know, we will allow evacuees, we will facilitate these corridors. And yet they don't. So we can't take what the Russian army says on face value. And the Mariupol has being half Russian myself, I think becomes such a symbolism for the Russians of their, of their desire to control Donbass, but also just, well, it's, a, it's an embarrassment. Anyone who really knows the reality on the, situa- on the ground is aware that they need to have something. And Mariupol is not particularly that big. It is quite strategically important, but it's become such a symbol of the Russians must get something. And if they have to get something, it will be Mariupol, even if it's a new Grozny in Chechnya. So... It's very symbolic, I think, to the Russians at this point, even if it's not of that, you know, they'd be better off focusing on uh, um, Izium or other areas in the northern part of Luhansk and Donetsk, for example. Uh, generally, the, the Russians have upped their, their attacks, but it's again poorly coordinated. The Ukrainians are well aware of what to expect, more than kitted out, 
Uh, and as Biden said earlier today, you know, he is very determined to provide all the support necessary to the Ukrainians to ensure that they can win this fight, because this fight isn't just about Ukraine's independence. It's about a symbolism of democracy and autocracy. If we let Ukraine fall, then we are simply saying to the Russians, yes, you can take what you want and uh, autocracy can continue to, to spread um, or, or, you know, dominate democracy. So it's, it's important that we continue to support them. It's a fine line as to how much we should get involved, but we have uh, so many, so many pieces of equipment coming, so much information. The Ukrainians are a testament as well, I think, to the training of NATO and the difference that a few years of, tr of training and advisement and political usage um, in terms of uh, connecting the Ukrainian people with NATO in the West. Um, and, and, and so... They are supposedly the 22nd most powerful army, yet they're going up against the second and absolutely kicking its butt. So there's a lot to cover from this, um, but uh, we can go into more specific things uh, later on if you so wish. Quick, quick pause for everybody, because we've just done over half of our record time on the podcast. This is a recording of the podcast Mid-Atlantic. I will be calling people up in about 10 minutes uh, to weigh in on either uh, Boris Johnson or uh, the situation in, in Ukraine. So if you are in the audience and you have a question or you have a point to make, you'll, you'll be allowed to come up on stage um, in a little while. But uh, whilst you are in the audience, uh, if you couldn't... Um, before we come specifically back onto uh, the defenders in the Mariol, Mariupol sorry, uh, factory, uh, Steve, because I know it's pretty late for you in the UK, so I'm going to come to you, then to you, Marshall. You've been waiting patiently and diligently uh, for, for a question. So when I have a sense of how exactly uh, your two countries are uh, reporting the conflict. So Marshall, we haven't heard from you yet. So how is the uh, Ukrainian conflict playing out in the American media? Um, I think it kind of depends on which media you're watching. I think if you're watching any of the mainstream, any of the three basic uh, news stations, ABC, CBS, NBC, you're getting maybe a center right to center left tilt, depending on what time of day you're listening to. Um, some media has opinion hosts that argue for greater intervention, uh, but there's a lot of other media hosts who are opinion people during the day who say, oh, no, we shouldn't do that on both MSNBC, CNN, and Fox News. I, I personally don't watch Newsmax or OAN. Um, or read uh, RT, but I do keep track of, of other things like that. And um, I think there's a sense that we should help the Ukrainians, but there's an equally large sense that America doesn't need to get into another war come hell or high water. Even if it's, even if it's the right war to get involved in, we shouldn't get involved in it, basically. There's an isolationist wing that I think is there because they're fatigued from military service for over 20 years. Last question to you on this point, Marshall. You talked about a right-left divide. How exactly is that playing out in terms of this conflict? This takes several forms, with people being more isolationist to say, look, we've got more problems in the United States to deal with. Uh, there are other people in on the right-hand side who are more Trump folks, and they say, look, there's no appetite for America to be a leader that I've heard of. I mean, it leads lead through aid packages and stuff like that, but nobody I know wants to send American troops to Ukraine. You know, on both sides of the aisle, unfortunately, that's kind of where we're at here. 
Thank you for that, Marshall. Uh, Steve O'Neill, because I know I know it's getting late for you in London. We did report in in this room um, some some weeks ago. You know, the groundswell of British uh, opinion was so behind the Ukrainians that when the government launched its scheme to house Ukrainian refugees, a hundred thousand people applied uh, to house uh, Ukrainians, and this was at variance with Priti Patel, the Home Secretary only at, um, at that point processing, I think it was less than 200 visa applications. Is there any sense in British media that the country could do more? One of the things I, I was, me was most marked uh, was that before the invasion actually happened, uh, Britain uh, was the first European country actually to send arms to, to Ukraine, knowing the intelligence that this invasion was actually going to happen. And I saw that the Speaker of the House today was wearing a Ukrainian pin. Give us a sense of the housing the refugees scheme uh, and, and also the media portrayal of this war and how maybe it's affected UK politics. Yeah, the, the media portrayal has been, I, I think, um, incredibly consistently supportive of Ukraine, supportive of Zelensky, uh, anti-Putin, you know, all kinds of papers calling him all kinds of things, uh, you know, repeating the the charges against him, genocide and being a butcher and all kinds of other headlines. Um, I think it's been very consistent. Um, obviously, papers have differed uh, to the extent they've um, criticised where the government response has been weak and it's been weakest around refugees. Um, and I certainly think public opinion broadly would be in favour of being more generous there as... as um, as you know, recent news has, has suggested the government does not want to be generous at all when it comes to refugees and wants to be quite hard line with migration most of the time. Um, and I think that that's, that's where we are, really. We are joined on stage by um, a few, few other people. Um, I want to quickly come to you, Tirin. Um, you're based in Berlin. Germany and Ukraine have had a little bit of a, a, a minor spat um, uh, recently. Can you just remind us exactly the framing of that uh, kind of diplomatic incident and then give us a, a sense of a German political will uh, regarding the invasion of Ukraine. Uh, I have to ask, uh, do you want me to go back a week or do you want me to go back a month or how many years do you want me to go back? <laughs> Let's just go back to um, just the initial, this the spat, because the, the president of Germany wanted to visit uh, Ukraine. I know we kind of mentioned this before. but as two we weeks. Do, yeah, as we're just doing a, a little bit of a round robin in terms of countries and, the, and their um, opinions on, on the conflict. Let's just start there. The federal president of Germany, who is a ceremonial figurehead, um, so the, the chancellor is uh, comparable to the uh, the prime minister, and yeah, the uh, I, I would say the federal president is something like the you know the queen, without uh, without all the uh, nice stuff. So uh, yeah, just just a figurehead for ceremonial uh, duties and a couple constitutional functions, and uh, he uh, was on his way. Yeah, he, he was in Poland and uh, wanted to go. Uh, to to Ukraine with some other EU officials, or I believe heads of state or heads of government, and uh, the uh, Ukrainians uh, declared him president of Nangrada. He shouldn't come, um, and the real reason why was because uh, his history in the Merkel government as foreign minister was uh, pro-Russian, pro-Nord uh, Stream Two, and that goes back even further when he was. Uh, 
the chancellor's minister, which is like a chief of staff uh, for Schroeder. So his his support for Russia and and, and the idea of uh, development of the relationship and change of, of Russia through trade uh, goes back uh, quite a few decades. So that was uh, two weeks ago. And then uh, the big news this week has been that one of the uh, armament companies here, I believe it was Ryan Mattel, uh, said they've got a whole bunch of, you know, the, the, the older generation of equipment, not the newest generation. So late Cold War equipment, stuff that was built in the 70s, basically used until the into the 80s and 90s, but not the, the newest German generation of equipment. That they had, yeah, I think three hundred uh, of the of the main battle tanks and uh, and other equipment that they could uh, refurbish, and and they put it on a list. And uh, essentially, Ukraine said, oh, "We want this." And uh, uh, today or yesterday, uh, the list came out, and uh, Scholz had said, uh, "Not this, not that, not that." And it's taken me a little while to figure out exactly uh, what was going on because they were speaking uh, pretty cryptically about everything. But as best as I can ascertain, what's going on is they're saying, look, all of this equipment isn't really ready to go and you're, you need to be trained on it. And so what we're going to do is we're going to give this equipment to the other NATO countries on our, on our eastern border, and they're going to use their old Soviet equipment that the Ukrainians know how to use, and they're going to ship it over to them as quickly as possible. And um, it, I, I, it was, there was a really strange situation on the German news last night where they interviewed the, the head of the Green Party, who, who isn't one of the ministers. His name is Hofreiter, and he's got long hair. You know, he looks like a hippie. And he's saying, you know, we've got to send we've got to send heavy weapon systems to Ukraine. And then uh, the next scene, or the previous scene, was the, the German chief of staff of the armed for of the German armed forces saying, "We can't." <laughs> the world turned upside down. You know, the generals don't want to go to war, and and the hippies do. So yeah, it, it's been a bit of a weird thing. And on the other hand, the uh, the German uh, diplomat here, uh, Malek, is his name. He's uh, pretty undiplomatic, and, and he's been making a stink everywhere. But I think everybody understands him here pretty well. So that, that's the, the last two weeks, I think, in a nutshell, as quick as I could. Uh, and that uh, was a, a, a perfect roundup. And, and I love the, the image that you left us, that the, the hippies want to go to war, but the, the, the generals don't. Irina, um, I believe you're in Vienna. Yes, that's true. Hi. Hi, and um, you were you're of Ukrainian of birth. Yes, yes, I lived there quite a long time. <laughs> just to move this on, but very slightly, from just a recounting of how they feel about the, the whole war. But how are Austrian uh, media reporting on the surrounding of the city of, of Mariupol? We're seeing these harrowing images here in America. If you look looking at the media, and there is this narrative of brave defenders, the last redoubt, these are the last 1,000 Ukrainian troops, and there is this humanitarian uh, disaster. But how exactly um, is this playing out in, in Austrian media? I believe it's kind of the same way. I have not read too much. I just saw a couple of newspapers, and uh, it's very detailed. It's also dis de uh, kind of described as a, in a heroic uh, situation. Um, I think it's the same... Uh, all over the world. I don't think that Austrian 
media is uh, too different from others and uh, overall the sentiment in Austria everywhere is very pro-Ukrainian, very uh, a lot of help to refugees, of course. But uh, what I see is that the actual, uh, in terms of in terms of actually support, financial support, it's not so much. So a lot of people are thinking of going back. And that's actually the dilemma that I'm also in. I'm not sure if uh, my family should go back to Kiev or not. They want to go back to Kiev, but it's not sure. So it's kind of, we are in this kind of uncertain situation. So, so your family were in, in Lvov? Uh, yeah, they are in the in the western part, not in Lviv, but in the western part. Yes. Going back, going back to the position that Austria finds itself in. Obviously, Austria is a neutral country; it's not part of NATO. So, uh, the Austrians aren't sending uh, weapon systems uh, to to Ukraine. But have they pledged uh, financial uh, support, substantial financial support? What has the Austrian government actually done to show its uh, support for the Ukrainian people? I don't think that I know all the details. Uh, they, are, they are neutral, but they were sending quite a lot of uh, supplies. I actually didn't follow in uh, in terms of the like, specifics. Uh, I don't really know, but um, I'm sure that they are helping uh, significantly. And you know that Nehammer went to uh, Kiev and then went to Moscow as well. So he was in the news uh, last week. Uh, a lot, uh, and uh, yeah, I guess that's all I can say for now. Well, well thank you for that, uh, Irina. Thank you for giving us um, that uh, little, little bit of insight, and I hope that uh, your family stay safe. Uh, Piotr, um, these for the last two weeks, we've had word that the Russians are planning a, a big um, push from from the east uh, to capture the rest of the Donbass. Mm-hmm. Blast, Oblast. Um, and a, a town was taken two days ago. Um, do, if and when this big push happens, let's say it's happening, um, do we, do, what do we believe would be then the next phase of the war? Is this a case of the Russians want to capture that salient, all of that uh, Dunblast, Oblast, and then they can call call time on on this. That their strategic um, ambitions will just about be met. Yeah. So the town you're thinking of is called Kremina. Kremina. It's a it's a city in the Luhansk Oblast, and it was the one that was, um, should we say, the most notable acquisition by the Russians in the past couple of days. Now going back a little bit. We were waiting for over two weeks, almost three weeks, for this advancement to ever come, for this offensive to ever start. And it got to the point where I was beginning to think it wouldn't happen, that it was all smoke and mirrors and the Russians were simply just going to sit, occupy and destabilize eastern Ukraine. Because if they continually destabilize the eastern part of the country, they prevent them. Uh, Ukraine from not only entering the EU, but also NATO. So even with these, um, you know, the developments of membership applications, status, etc. As, as long as Russia is in the country, as long as there is a war zone in the country, so to speak, Ukraine is not going to be able to join the economic market of the EU. So this is part of the thing that I was thinking, but it seems since that they have begun in the past 
since the beginning of the week, increased their offensive, their advancements, their campaign, so to speak. Now, it's important to remember that the primary objective of this war was regime change and a prevention of Ukraine from shifting westwards to make it um, a vassal state similar to that of Belarus. It was never going to be because the Ukrainian people are, well, many more, and Ukraine created Russia, whilst Belarus arguably came out of Russia in some ways. So Ukraine's identity is far more firmly existing. Um, now the Russians have switched uh, and, shall we say, shrunk their overall strategic and military objectives to focus on the East. So one is their primary objective. Their primary objective is to obtain the Donbass region, the Donbass region consisting of Luhansk and Donetsk uh, oblasts, uh, which includes Mariupol. So what they're trying to do is a well-expected pincer movement uh, coming from the north, uh, just east of Azum, uh, Izium, excuse me, and then encircling well, Kremina, and then they own around 90% of Luhansk Oblast already, or so they claim. Then they go further southwards, and they obtain the rest of Donetsk. Uh, and this would be quite easy to do, in theory, because they already have the strong Russian separatist presence there. Uh, but... The Ukrainian forces there are some of the best trained because that's where they've been fighting for the past eight years. So it's a, a bit of give and take. Then there's the topography of eastern Ukraine. Very flat, much more easy for the Russians to deal with than, say, the northern parts of Ukraine around Kiev and the Chernihiv area. So I think phase one is take the rest of Donetsk and Luhansk, and that's their primary goal. And they can somehow argue to themselves that they've you know, got the minimalist uh, scenario. Then you have another one, which is to go westwards, westwards from Luhansk, and try and take over the Zaporizhia Oblast, which is the very southeastern one that is just north of the Seas of Azov. And that would be quite a strong um, area of uh, area of land that would help connect this land bridge, and it would be very appealing to members of um, the, uh, the Russian military uh, uh, in uh, Crimea. And then you have a nice big chunk of land. Then there's the maximalist scenario, phase three, which is they try and push all the way westwards to Kherson and the Dinapa River. Now, this looks incredibly uh, less likely now. The, Russia, uh, the Ukrainians are increasingly pushing eastwards and have retaken some areas around uh, Mykolaiv. And as our um, guest in the Global Gambit podcast said, there was you know signs that Ukrainians were making sizable regains in that area. So I think... The, the Russians are definitely going to push for the Donbass region, and they may, if they really can facilitate it, have the equipment, have the resolve, have the whatever, supply chain efficiency, push for a slightly bit more of what's known as Novorossiya. But that is very all far off in the distance. And the last thing I'll say is that this was all with the intention of trying to obtain the end of the war by May 9th, Victory Day, which is a very important day in Russian history. But I think that is unlikely now, and they are likely what, what Putin will want is something to sell to the Russians uh, and the Russian population. So at least Donbass. I think he wants to at least get Donbass by May 9th. So in less than two, about just over two weeks. If he can't do that, then this conflict is going to look really bad for him, which it really doesn't look great. And, if he, and then if he can do more, if the momentum returns to the Russians, then he may well try and push for more. But I, I definitely think Donbass is the minimum incredibly um succinctly and very clearly uh put uh mr k uh mr satel what can and i've got two questions for you but the first question is what could uh putin 
take back uh, to Moscow and say, this is a victory. Is it a case of he needs to uh, grab uh, this last bit of uh, the Donbass region and he can declare victory? What, what is victory for Vladimir Putin now? That's, that's the first question. I mean, what would Trump need to declare a victory? He just needs to declare a victory. I mean, he can call a victory whatever he wants to call a victory. He can just say, we won. And there's Putin's victory. I don't, to be honest, I, I don't quite understand why people think he needs an actual victory on the ground to declare victory when that is belied by recent history, both in Russia and America, I think, practically speaking, he will get nothing, uh, not even Mariupol. Uh, you know, you only need to Google uh, Ukrainian cyborgs in Donetsk airport and you get a sense of how long this can draw out. That was a very similar situation where, you know, it was uh, for weeks we were hearing that the Russians would, would take over or the, and, and just, just to be clear about terms, there are no separatists in Donbass. There was never a separatist movement in Donbass. One day, a bunch of mafia guys and mercenaries showed up with guns and called themselves separatists. There was never a separatist, a true separatist movement. That, that's just a, a fig leaf for Russian imperialism. But in the Donetsk airport back in 2014, it was a very similar situation uh, where we were hearing that they could only last, you know, maybe another week or so. And that went on for months. And then, and then it was days and that went on for weeks. And then it went back to weeks again. So very, very similar things. So I'm not at all convinced that uh, that Russia will get Mariupol in in any uh in 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 anything like the the near future, and I think the idea that they would take Donbas in is is becoming very very unlikely. Especially the U.S. military made a couple announcements today, which one of which was that at this point Ukraine has more tanks in Ukraine than Russia does, and. They also announced that there was a uh, that the U.S. military had developed a drone specifically for Ukraine, which I think it's fairly safe to assume that this drone has specifically been designed to take out Russian artillery. And also, uh, we've had a number of announcements this week that a, a lot of very sophisticated artillery is going to be is either in Ukraine or will be in Ukraine in the next week or so. So with with that and the history, I don't I, I don't see I think it's it's, you know, anything's possible. But I, but I think it's very, very likely that Russia wins anything. I think that there was the meme I saw on the internet 
Greg, where it was saying that the Ukrainian farmers now had the fourth largest standing army in Europe because of the amount of Russian equipment that they had, uh, should we say, acquired from the Russians <laughs> over the course of the conflict. I also want to make it clear that my scenario framework is not one that I think will happen. It's just what I think the Russians want to happen. But I highly doubt it will reach that level. Yeah, and I also think Piotr made a good point about the difference in topography. And I think a good way to think about this is that the battle has moved from Vermont with, you know, these tall, dense forests that, that made uh, very nice cover for, for, for the Ukrainians to ambush uh, Russian columns to basically Iowa with vast open spaces, which is why there's so much more emphasis on artillery. You've led me expertly, Greg, on to uh, my second question to you. U.S. President Joe Biden has announced just today an additional $800 million worth of security assistance for Ukraine, uh, including heavy artillery, which you meant which you mentioned, ammunition and tactical drones, which you also mentioned. So, so well done for telegraphing where, where I was going with this. What more can the US and the West do? And then the last question is, is that if the conflict stays within the bounds which we've come accustomed to for the last uh, eight weeks or so, what is the West's red line, which it wouldn't go any further? So there are no chemical weapons. There's no weapons of mass destruction used on the battlefield. There are no um, provocative attacks outside of the Ukrainian battle space to, to NATO members. But it kind of stays contained within the state of Ukraine. Well, I, I do think, I, I, I don't know about any red lines. I, I, I think the red line comes to, like, an actual shooting war between NATO soldiers and Russian soldiers. But I'm not a military expert or anything like that. But I do think, uh, you know, we should, there's a couple of, of data points that are instructive. And I think the first data point is the U.S. military budget is $8 billion dollars. Is $800 billion. And over the past eight years, we've spent l significantly less than $10 billion in, t in Ukraine. And that less than $10 billion is bringing Russia to its knees. So in terms of, you know, just in terms of military spend, how much more can we do? I would say we could do a whole lot more. I mean, we haven't we are not even at 1% of America's military budget, and we're bringing Russia to its knees. Uh, the second data point is the sanctions. In 2014, we leveled sanctions in, uh, onto to Russia. And, uh, and there was a lot of discussion then, as there is now, uh, how long those sanctions would hold. And uh, in, you know, January 2022, before this war broke out, not only were all those 2014 sanctions still on, but there'd been many added on top of them. So, and, and the fact that 
many of these new sanctions that have been put on since the uh, since this war has started, since Russia invaded, these were legislative sanctions and would need to be unwound legislatively. It's not like a new president could just come in uh, or it's not even a, a single country in Europe could unilaterally decide to take out all of these sanctions. These sanctions on Russia are going, not to mention the informal sanctions of how many multinational companies pulled out and how long is it going to be till the to or or will they ever be comfortable uh investing money back into Russia so we're talking you know we're 2 months into it uh we already t- hear about russian factories closing down because they lack components uh the may holiday is is coming up, which is similar to spring break in America. And nobody in Russia is going anywhere. They're not, you know, except for maybe oligarchs who have money stashed somewhere. But everybody who was planning on taking their family for a vacation in the Mediterranean or the Canary Islands or the Caribbean or whatever... Turkey, what, you know, the, the, the young kids, professionals who were planning on a, you know, beach vacation in Turkey, nobody's going anywhere. Their credit cards don't work. They're not welcome. Um, that is really, really going to sit, uh, that, that's really going to start to seep in after the May holidays. And what we're going to see is a worsening and worsening, uh, uh, situation to where it get back it gets back to the 80s and 90s in in Russia. So I think that is the most likely scenario we're looking at where we're looking at at a uh, a sort of reinvigorated west that can continue upping the ante and a weaker and weaker Russia that is increasingly going to be looking for a way out. I think just to add to that some statistics so when Ukraine, uh, when Russia invaded Crimea and the sanctions were set upon it in three rounds in 2015, um, they mainly consisted of travel bans and asset freezes, similar to what we've seen now to a lesser extent, of course, and not targeting those of the heads of state of Putin, Lavrov, and so. And they cut the economy of Russia by almost a third within a year. The economy of Russia in 2014 was about $2.2 trillion. And then in a year later, a year and a half later, it was 1.5. So it shows you the power. There were other factors, of course, contributing to that. But generally, the sanctions have had a, a market imprint on the Russian economy. So perish the thought what is going to happen when these sanctions, you know, we've, when we've had a longer amount of time to measure the impact of these sanctions. The IMF has put the Russian economy to be not just not growing, but contracting by 8.5%. And for its overall just um, GDP per capita, I think, to, to shrink by about 20%. So if the Russians have uh, 10000 as the average income at the moment, $10,000, that will shrink to 8000 It's still more than double of the Ukrainians, but it's going to be enough of a crunch that the Russians feel it. And the last thing I would just say is that the day before the sanctions were imposed, the first set of sanctions on February 22nd, the Russian economy had around 2,700 individual entities that were sanctioned. 
Overnight, that more than doubled to now 5,500. And we've never seen a country, one, the size of Russia sanctioned to that extent, but also just that much sanctioned. Before that happened, Iran was the most sanctioned country in the world at about 3,600 uh, individual entities, uh, according to the Office of Foreign Asset Control, or OFAC, which is the Department of Treasury, part of the Department of Treasury in the United States. So just some data to, 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 to uh, correspond with what uh, Greg is saying. Yeah, uh, and if I can just add one thing on the top of what Piotr said, another difference is the export sanctions to Russia. And this is something new. And this is going to be something that takes a bigger and bigger bite as time goes on. Because if you think about, uh, about a, uh, a global supply chain, and where a typical manufacturer, especially a military manufacturer, because apparently Russia can't make tanks anymore, um, but any type of high, uh, any type of high tech component, whether it's a, an advanced uh, computer chip or a laser, but also even much more mundane, you know, it could be as simple as a, you know, as a sp specific bolt, you know, a, a typical military contractor in the United States will have, you know, several thousand uh, uh, suppliers. And then when you go to the second tier and third tier and fourth tier supplier, that raises to, you know, you know, closer to 10,000 for for most uh, products. You know, Russia has been cut off from that. So their ability to actually produce even something as simple as getting a car repaired. How do you get a car repaired if you don't have access to parts? And those are the types of things that Russia has, are, are going to really start biting in the months ahead. Another thing which seems to point in the direction of sanctions actually working is, I believe in the last two weeks, we've had it four oligarchs die under suspicious circumstances or outright just suicide so yesterday we had the um head of um gazprom bank uh well the vice president sorry uh vladislav Ayayev and sergey promisea um who was uh the novatech deputy chairman surely this points to the fact that um starving the russians uh, at least on the very elite level, on the oligarch level of their assets, telling them that they can't travel, um, their bank accounts don't work, is having a noticeable effect. This cannot just be a coincidence. Greg Sattel. I don't know. Maybe they were depressed. I mean, I, 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 I'm not their therapist. I do remember that after the Orange Revolution, and I forget the, the man's name, but... Uh, the 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 minister of transportation and what you have to understand is in in ukraine at the time uh the the railway uh company owned an enormous amount of outdoor advertising space so it was very very much involved with a lot of the shenanigans that went on during uh, during the the falsified election that led to the Orange Revolution, but there was a number of people showing up dead after the Orange Revolution. But you always have to wonder whether these are 
really uh, people who were depressed or maybe that, you know, just some things, somebody was trying to clean some things up, but I don't really know. So, so there we go. It's almost the end of April and the Russians have not been dislodged yet uh, from Ukraine, but um, our, not only our hopes and our prayers, but also um, our munitions and our armaments um, are going to help uh, those people who are fighting for their independence against uh, this most unwarranted and barbaric invasion by Vladimir Putin's Russia. Firstly, I'd like to thank Arena for joining us. Uh, Arena, as she said, was born and grew up in, in Ukraine and has family there. And also, it's always great to have Greg Sattel, who has extended family also in Ukraine. Mid-Atlantic needs you, uh, dear listener, if you listen to this podcast. And I say this every week, but some 5,000 of you download the podcast every time. And I thank you for that. But what you can do is you can be part of the live recording of this podcast by downloading the Clubhouse app. We record these shows on Clubhouse. Clubhouse is social audio. Quite simply, go to an app catcher of your uh, an app store of your choice, sorry, and download the Clubhouse app. And it means that then you will be alerted if you join the Mid Atlantic Club when we go live with these rooms. We would love to see you as part of the audience if you're a loyal listener. And it's great that some of our loyal listeners do actually join. Tyrion Fisher is one of those. So um, special shout out to him. You can send me an email. Quite simply, I'm just Royfield at Gmail, and uh, we can communicate about the show. Maybe there's a feature, maybe there's a country uh, which you'd like us to to cover. You always say that this show is a, a compare and contrast between the US and UK politics, and that's at the heart of what we do. But very obviously, we do widen it out from time to time. And my, my God, are we not in special circumstances now for us to talk about politics, uh, which isn't just germane to the United Kingdom and to the United States. So that's the reason why we're digging deep into uh, looking at uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, thank you for the people who've given us such great feedback about the interview which we did with Chuck Holton, uh, the embedded war, war correspondent. I think that was a, it was a, tr- a tremendous kind of insight view into somebody who's reporting on the ground and, and, and really gave us a sense of how the Ukrainian people um, how their attitude went from this is not going to happen, this is Tuesday, I think was the expression that Greg, that, that, that Chop used through to being resolute in their defence. So thank you for the people who emailed me, so they really uh, appreciated that. Uh, Chuck will be joining us again in, in a couple of weeks, and he will be uh, a regular on the show. Um, don't forget, I always say this every time, but left to centre politics is right thing in politics, but we don't demonise our right-leaning brothers and sisters. We just try and bring them over with the strength of our argument. Take care. Look after yourselves. Be good. Bye-bye. That's the end of the podcast recording. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.